You are listening to MCC Votes and Seats, the podcast series of the Center for Political Science of Matthias Corvinus Collegium. We provide election insights with experts and politicians. This time we are going to talk about the Armenian parliamentary election held on the 20th of June 2021. Our guest expert is Dr. Mikhail Zolyan, a political analyst and historian specializing in ethnic conflicts, nationalism and ethnicity, as well as democratization and democracy in the post-Soviet context. He works as associate professor at the Yerevan V. Brusov State University of Languages and Social Sciences. Since December 2018, Mr. Zolyan is an elected member of the National Assembly from the electoral list of the My Step Alliance. Mr. Zorian, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So as to start, the elections were initially scheduled for December 2023, but were moved forward due to the ongoing political crisis in Armenia following the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war. This parliamentary election is the third one in the past five years. This time the country is in survival mode and national security is dominating the campaign. What do you think? Was the 44-day war a hot topic driving the political narrative in the campaign? Thank you for the question. Obviously, it is true the 44-day war is one of the main topics in this campaign and it is pretty much the reason why this election is happening now rather than in 2023. In general, 2020 was a crisis for the whole world, but for Armenia it was an extremely difficult time starting with COVID pandemic because Armenia, as you know, it's a landlocked country with two of its neighbors basically have closed the border Azerbaijan and Turkey. This made it even more difficult for Armenia to survive the COVID pandemic and then came the war, which was a tragedy for all Armenians because Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh, it is a very important part of Armenian homeland. Uh, obviously, Azerbaijan considers it its own territory and there's an ongoing debate about that. And this meant that the political situation in the country has shifted significantly. In 2018, uh, Nikol Pashinyan was the beloved leader of the revolution and his party received uh, more than 70% of the votes in an election which was uh, the first one for 20 years, which was not contested in the sense that everybody accepted their defeat. And Pashinyan was very popular, but obviously the war was a major blow and it means that Pashinyan needs to renew his mandate. It, we need to understand what does the Armenian voter think now? Do they still trust Pashinyan? The big question is the war. Why it happened? Uh, was it somebody's fault personally? Was it possible to stop the war? Uh, was it possible to win the war? Was it possible to have less casualties? These are all the questions that are being constantly asked. And then there are people who think that the war actually happened because the previous Armenian governments were corrupt and they did not invest enough in the army because in the war, basically, we faced a NATO-trained army. Azerbaijan is a close ally of Turkey. Turkey is a NATO member. They used Turkish weapons. They had Turkish instructors. There were even Turkish officers who commanded the operations. The post-Soviet Armenian army proved to be the weaker link in that. Or maybe it's nobody's fault and it's just the geopolitical situation has shifted, Turkey has become stronger, Russia has become weaker, and uh, this was inevitable, so it's not really somebody's fault. Thank you very much for putting the topic in a wider regional context. But what is your personal opinion? Do you think that the war was inevitable? Yes, I think it was obvious that it was going to happen at some point because the conflict was unresolved. And you have to understand that the first war that took place in the early 90s, Azerbaijan saw it as a the first battle, but they never accepted the situation and they were planning for revenge. And um, 
in this war, I think the fact that this war happened, uh, a major factor was the Turkish factor. Recently, uh, the Russian influence has been weakened and Turkish influence has grown. And uh, also given the recent advances in the Turkish uh, military industry and both experts and participants of the war think that it was the drones were one of the factors that decided the, the, the outcome. But it's my own opinion based on my analysis that it would have happened sooner if it was not for the revolution because there were signs that in fall 2018 Azerbaijan was planning to start a major war. Uh, but because of the revolution, they were not sure what was going on. They had hopes that maybe they would acquire something without uh, resorting to war. I think they postponed it. The Turkish involvement made sure that it was impossible for Armenia to win. But unfortunately, today, the emotions are too high. So everybody's blaming each other. In this atmosphere, I think we will not get these answers about why the war happened. So that's why I think election is important, because it helps to channel this discussion into political procedure. Yes, it is very fascinating that you said that the Velvet Revolution contributed to the postponement of the war. And of course, it was so sad to see all the losses on both sides and uh, how the cultural monuments were destroyed in the war. But besides the topic of this 44-day war in Artsakh, what were the main slogans and issues addressed in the campaign? Well, obviously, the war was one of the main issues, but also other issues included a fight against corruption. And this is where Pashinyan is stronger because uh, corruption has uh, really decreased in Armenia in the last three years. Before the revolution in Armenia, basically, you had to face corruption in any sphere of life that you were working. Another issue which is uh, related to that is the issue of the court system. The court system was also very corrupt and because judiciary is a separate branch of government, uh, it didn't change with the revolutions. You cannot just dismiss all the judges and hire new judges who don't have experience. But on the other hand, a lot of these judges, they have the image of being corrupt, so people don't trust the courts. Uh, then, of course, it's the economy. Uh, economy has been recovering since the war. I mean, obviously, we haven't uh, reached the level of 2019 yet, when Armenia was actually the fastest growing economy in Europe. But obviously, the war and the pandemic, they hit hard. Now, economy is recovering, not as fast as, you know, everybody would want to. And uh, then there's the issue of relations with Russia and with the rest of the world. Uh, Pashinyan has the mainstream position that we have to continue our alliance with Russia, but we also have to work with the West. But then there are uh, more kind of radical positions on both sides of the spectrum. There are some parties who say that we need to stop our alliance with Russia and we need to go to the West. And then uh, you have the opposite view. There are some parties that say that we are not close enough to Russia. According to international observers, Armenia's early parliamentary elections were competitive and well run, but polarized and mared by aggressive rhetoric. Nikol Pashinyan's civil contract party received 54% of the vote and uh, won 72 seats, a majority in the 105-seat parliament. Nikol Pashinyan resigned in April 2021 and served as acting prime minister, leading the My Step Alliance. Former president Robert Kocharyan's platform, the opposition Armenia Alliance, finished second with bit more than 21%, while the I Have Honor Alliance won six seats, having gained a bit more than 5% of the vote. So what do you think, Mikhail? What chances does Pashinyan have to form a government that would complete a full mandate? Actually, he has received a clear majority. One needs basically more than 50% to complete a government on their own without the need for coalition, and he has received about 54%. And also, if you look at the amount of the seats in the parliament, it's even higher 
there because the votes of those parties that didn't get the threshold, they are distributed between the winners. Pashinyan's party will have 71 or 72 mandates out of 106. So it's a clear majority. It's, it's even though some opposition parties have uh, claimed that uh, elections were fraudulent, but uh, it's also obvious that they are not going to challenge the elections in any serious way because they have not called on their supporters to protest in the streets. I guess all the actors now want to face a peaceful period in the aftermath of the war. But which political actors will support Pashinyan's government? Pashinyan has already started a series of meetings with representatives of those parties that did not pass uh, the threshold. Uh, there were several parties that said they, you know, they were not going to meet him and they were not going to cooperate with him, which is mostly the parties that are second and third. But uh, most of the other parties, they have accepted these uh, suggestions of the meetings. In some cases, there is speculation that some of the uh, people from these parties may get a place in the new government. But overall, I think in Armenia, there is a feeling that this internal political conflict, which was very sharp since last year, maybe it hasn't been resolved, but it has been transformed. So now it will be happening inside the walls of the parliament. There will probably be no more street activity. So what do you think? What are the main fault lines in the Armenian society? There are many fault lines. The main fault line is between the old elites and the new elites or you could say people who were in power for the last 20-25 years and the political, economic, media elite and you have the sort of working class people, people in the regions and so on who support Pashinyan and of course Pashinyan's team which uh, wants to be the new elite. In 2018 there was a change, the old elites had to leave and the new elite came but it wasn't complete so you still have a lot of uh, spheres where the old elite is still very powerful such as business, media, even in state system, there are a lot of people who are connected to the old elite. So I think that's the main fault line. Another one is, as I said, it's between pro-Russian and pro-Western uh, forces. But I think the majority in Armenia, they realize that the situation that exists today, it doesn't really have an alternative. We can't really leave uh, you know, the region and like, physically move somewhere else. And of course, there are a lot of uh, divisions based on the attitude to war. Or, and it's it's quite tense. I mean, you have families breaking up, friends who stop talking to each other. These things are normal. Hopefully, after the elections, will you know, some time will pass after the elections, it will be possible to create some solidarity. It is very unfortunate that this political turbulence affects family relations and friendly relations. But are there any calm voices in the middle? the discourse has become very aggressive and it's really impossible to remain uh, peaceful. But I think the part of the reason for that is um, lack of democratic political culture in Armenia. Because in the past, uh, in most elections, from the very beginning, it was obvious that the current government will do everything to put forward their own candidate using election fraud, using election bribes, etc. So there was no real political struggle. In 2018, the elections were clean, but there was a clear front runner. It was obvious that Pashinyan was going to get the majority in a clean election. By the way, do you think the new Pashinyan cabinet will be able to stop or calm down the internal political turmoil in the country? 
I don't think that this conflict that was in Armenia's political life, it will stop completely, but it will become institutionalized. It will become a part of the parliamentary debate. And I think the opposition will have their own legal leverage positions in the parliament, like the deputy speaker. They will become integrated with the systems. In that sense, this conflict will not be very sharp. I understand. Talking about rhetorics, one day after the elections, Pashinyan supporters gathered at Yerevan's main square on Monday. What were the major slogans at the celebration? And uh, also, what are the main expectations of Pashinyan supporters? Do anti-corruption issues still resonate among Armenians after the 44-day war? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the war changed the agenda a lot, but the anti-corruption issues, they're still very urgent for most Armenians. Pashinyan's voters expect from him the continuation of the reform, and they expect from him to bring to an end some of the corruption investigations, because a lot of these investigations are hanging. At the same time, I think Pashinyan uh, understands that he will have to do a more conciliatory policies now. In the process of the campaign, there was some tension between Pashinyan and the Armenian Apostolic Church. So he also suggested to have uh, a dialogue with the Armenian Apostolic Church. Uh, and in general, I think his tone was much more conciliatory. Talking about the Armenian Apostolic Church, does the church have a considerable position in Armenian society? Can it affect in any ways decision-making in the country? Uh, Armenian Apostolic Church is one of the strongest institutions in the country and also in the diaspora, uh, maybe even more so in Armenian diaspora, because outside of Armenia, it has been for a very long time basically the only institution that was able to keep the Armenian identity. And mostly, if you look at the Armenian communities, they are usually structured around the Armenian church. So even people who are not religious, they send their children to the schools which are run by the church. They usually come on Sunday to the service to see other members of the community. The Armenian church has strong influence, but especially inside Armenia, this influence has been somewhat uh, vain because under the previous government, some church uh, representatives were accused of cooperating with the previous government and even taking part in some corruption schemes. There were a couple of scandals that involved higher representatives of the, of the Armenian Apostolic Church. So the Armenian Apostolic Church also has to do some work to restore its standing among the believers. From the reaction that we got from the office of the patriarch, I feel like they are also happy that Pashinyan has made this conciliatory gesture and they don't want to be in a conflict with political establishment or with the state or with the government. Thank you very much. How did the pandemic change the traditional campaign techniques in Armenia? Not so much as you could expect online space has become a major battlefield, but this was the case even before the pandemic. Uh, but also in Armenia, the pandemic has sort of waned to a certain degree. We had very high numbers in autumn and in early spring, but by now uh, the numbers are quite low. If you come to Yerevan, you will see that people have mostly returned to their normal lives. Was the historically strong Armenian diaspora involved somehow in the election campaign? there is a prohibition of funding from abroad for political parties. There was no direct way for diaspora to get involved, but obviously there is support for certain political parties. Probably there is some funding as well. There are some political figures from Russia uh, who left from Armenia not so long ago, and uh, you know they are quite influential. So they have, some of them have come to Armenia and they are supporting certain political forces. You can't say that you know diaspora in general is supporting one one side or the other. Uh, I think diaspora is just as divided as uh, Armenians inside Armenia. 
There are a lot of people from the diaspora who moved to Armenia, and some of them are taking part in the campaign now. Some of them are uh, active in civil society. But in, in the end, it's people who live in Armenia who decide. Thank you. Thank you very much. You addressed Armenians living outside of the country's borders. So let's move to a regional outlook. Experts say that from Moscow's perspective, Pashinyan is a kind of guarantor that the November 2020 agreement will remain in place. So Armenia hosts a Russian military base and the agreement includes the stationing of some 2,000 Russian peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh. Do you agree with such claims? Anybody who would be the prime minister of Armenia, they would have to cooperate with Russia and they would have to honor the agreement that was concluded on November 9, because that's just how things are. So obviously you need some stronger ally and the only ally which is available is Russia. There were some parties in the elections that run from a kind of pro-Western platform and criticize Russia. But even they, uh, maybe one or two of them said that, you know, Armenia should uh, break the ties with Russia and join NATO. But they got maybe 1% or less because it's obvious that right now, you know, nobody's expecting Armenia in NATO and Turkey is a NATO member and it would block any such attempts. And Russia is the only realistic ally. But also from the point of view of Russia, Pashinyan, he's a good partner because he's not seen as kind of a Russian puppet by Armenian people. You know, he was quite independent and he even criticized Russia a lot when he was in opposition. So he's not seen as somebody who's just pro-Russian and he's just, you know, making concessions to Russia, which would be the case if Kocharyan would be elected because Kocharyan has made his uh, sort of... Uh, trademark that he's a pro-Russian candidate. He claims he's friends with uh, Vladimir Putin. And uh, that may have helped him. He, he probably he hoped that this would help him with Russia. But I think actually he overdid it a little bit because uh, Russia realized that if Kocharyan becomes the leader of Armenia, then he would be seen as a, somebody who's just moving along the Russian agenda. And uh, he wouldn't be convincing to the rest of the Armenian population. And also that could lead to some anti-Russian sentiment in Armenia. And also recently there was was a Turkey-Azerbaijan agreement about basically a military alliance, which I think alerted many people in Russia. And it basically means that there will be a Turkish military base in Azerbaijan. That uh, will also influence relations between Armenia and Russia. Uh, so we have a very complicated geopolitical situation right now. And uh, it is important that uh, Armenia's government is a legitimate one. So now let's talk a little bit about the electoral system in Armenia. The number of seats in the National Assembly is at least 101. The election threshold stands at 5% for parties and 7% for alliances. Four seats are reserved for national minorities of Armenia. Several of the parties and all of the alliances were established following Armenia's defeat in the Artsakh war. Four alliances and 23 parties applied to Armenia's Central Electoral Commission. In what sense were they different from the previous constellation of 2018? So the parties, I think you could uh, divide them into the older parties and the new parties, which, as you say, emerged after the war. The old, well-established parties, obviously Pashinyan's party, Civic Contract, which is the party in power. It was quite a small party until the revolution of 2018. So, But the 2018 revolution really boosted his popularity, and now it's probably the biggest party. Then you have the Republican Party, which was the ruling party before the revolution. It was established back in Soviet times as a kind of nationalist, anti-Soviet underground party. Then after Armenia received independence, it became part of the government in 1995. 
Under Levanter Petrosian, the first president, then it became the first party of the coalition under Robert Kocharyan in 1998. Then from 2008, it was basically the ruling party with Serge Sarkisyan, who was the leader of the party who came to power. Then there is Armenia Alliance led by Robert Kocharyan, who was the second president of Armenia. And this is an alliance of several parties, but the main party there is Dashnak Tutsun or Armenian Revolutionary Federation, as it is known, which is one of the oldest parties since the 19th century. But also this party is the largest party in the diaspora, but also there is a division inside this party. Many members of this party, they don't approve of the alliance with Kocharyan, especially in the diaspora, and they criticize their Armenian colleagues for making this alliance. And then there is the Armenian National Congress, which is the party of the first president, Levanter Petrosian. So we have this situation in which all the people who have ruled Armenia in the last 30 years, they are running in this election. So basically you have the first, the second, the third president president of Armenia and the current prime minister, they are all running in the election. Then there's a party called Prosperous Armenia, which is run by Armenia's richest man, Gagik Barukyan, uh, which is currently represented in the parliament. It is currently the biggest opposition party. And then we have another party which is in the parliament now, which is Bright Armenia. In terms of ideology, a lot of these parties are really indistinguishable from each other. You have some kind of centrist uh, liberal parties like Pashinyan's party and also Ter Petrosyan's party the first president's party. Then there are some national conservative parties like Republican Party or Robert Kocharyan. Uh, then you have a lot of nationalist parties that are either very pro-Russian or on the contrary, very anti-Russian. There is the National Democratic Pole who are very anti-Russian who say that Armenia should leave the alliance with Russia and move to the West. Uh, you have some liberal parties who are also critical of uh, Russia's role. And then you have Citizens' Choice Social Democratic Party. Party. Thank you very much for providing an insight to current Armenian party politics. So you mentioned former President Robert Kocharyan, whose Armenia alliance finished the second in the elections. Uh, the former president also acknowledged that uh, the cause of their defeat could be the lack of work during the campaign in rural areas. However, his alliance will soon submit to the Constitutional Court a report proving the existence of violations of the electoral procedure. Kocharyan's electoral bloc claimed hundreds of signals from polling stations testifying to organized and planned falsifications serve as a serious reason for lack of trust. What is the basis of Kocharyan's allegations and how and when can such claims be proved or contradicted? These claims will be taken uh, to the Constitutional Court and uh, also the Central Election Committee has been addressing some of these claims. There was a recount of ballots. In some stations, this increased the votes of the Armenia Alliance, but in other stations, it decreased the votes of the civil contractors. The rest have uh, acknowledged the results and also the international monitors have acknowledged the results. I think it's more of a political technology. They want to undermine the legitimacy of the current government and applying to the court and talking about violations. It is uh, one of the tools that is used to uh, undermine the trust to the government. Under the old government, people did not feel safe. People did not feel secure. There was a lot of corruption. People were suffering from uh, various pressures coming from some kind of officials or from some kind of local criminal authorities, or you could call them like the mafia bosses. 
I think the reason why Kocharyan is not taking a place in the parliament is because he's not a really a public politician. Like he's not used to uh, debates or giving speeches. I mean, he was always more of a manager or more of an administrator. And that's why he's not taking this mandate. I understand. Let's see the numbers now. What can be said about the voter turnout? So nationwide, the turnout stood at more or less 50% when the polls closed. Which social segments were mobilized the most and the least? First of all, with this turnout, you we need to understand that this 50% turnout, it, it should be considered quite high for Armenia because uh, there are a lot of Armenian citizens who don't reside in Armenia, uh, but they are still in the list of voters because you can't remove them. And it is very hard to determine, you know, who, who should stay on this list and who shouldn't. So basically all Armenian citizens who are registered as people residing in Armenia, they are on this list. But this includes hundreds of thousands of people who don't reside in Armenia, actually. Uh, I think if we were able to take these people out of the equation, then probably the uh, turnout would much higher, like 60-70%. I would say it was quite high among uh, all different groups. I mean, in Yerevan, I've seen big uh, lines for the election. There was big participation in the regions as well. The most active uh, was uh, the rural areas and like working class people, you could say. A lot of the business elites or elites in general who supported the opposition, they were also active and they were trying to mobilize people. Probably the middle class or, you know, young people were less active because it was difficult to find someone who was completely, you know, representing their interests. Uh, in Yerevan, I talked to a lot of young people who said they were not going to the elections because they uh, uh, they didn't see who they were going to vote for. And a lot of people who were active in the previous uh, elections or in the revolution, some of them uh, decided that this time they, they had nobody to support. But in general, I think overall participation is quite high. It was quite a good rate of participation. I see. It is very interesting to see this difference in the attitude towards uh, voting between the different generations. What is the actual balance of power between pro-Russian and pro-European voices? People became more vocal. It's the same people who were skeptical about the Russian role. Now they have become more radical. They are saying we should uh, stop this alliance with Russia. People who thought we would should move closer to Russia, they have become more vocal and they are stating this opinion more strongly now. I think the majority of Armenians, they understand that currently there's not much room for maneuver. We have this alliance with Russia, which it's still the only guarantee of security today. So we understand that we have to keep our alliance with Russia, whoever is in the government. And also we understand that we cannot cut our relations with the West because obviously for economic reasons, in order to do reforms, we need support of the European Union. And also because uh, Turkey is a NATO member, we have to maintain our relations with the US as well. Do you see any difference in the support for parties in uh, urban and in rural areas and also among older and um, younger generations? In Armenia now, people in the regions, in the smaller towns, in the rural areas, they are more supportive of Pashinyan. And people in Yerevan, in the big capital, which is uh, one third of the population, they are more divided. The level of support of Pashinyan is lower and there is a lot of support for all the other parties. For Kocharyan, there is more support in uh, Sunik, this region in the south, where people suffered uh, a lot from the war. Kocharyan's allies have a lot of economical influence there and some of the local mayors are Kocharyan's allies. And uh, among the middle class or intellectuals, 
the first president had relatively more support, but again, they are very divided and they have not been able to kind of come together around a single agenda because in the past, uh, the middle class was much more supportive of Pashinyan, but now after the war, it's much more complicated. There are lots of parties competing for support. Yeah, and about the older, younger divide, it's secondary to the regional and the capital divide and it's secondary to like working class and upper class divides. I think in Armenia, the difference between generations in terms of politics, not as big as the difference between different social groups or different regions. Thank you very much. Let me ask you a personal question. As an elected member of the National Assembly, how did you see the work in Parliament during the war and after the war in these uh, turbulent times? Well, obviously, it was very, very difficult. I mean, my work was related to foreign relations and parliamentary diplomacies. We were working a lot on the issues uh, related to the war. Basically, it was providing information to our colleagues and explaining what the situation is and asking for support on human rights issues such as, uh, you know, the prisoners of war who are still in Azerbaijan, the destruction of cultural property and things like that. But of course, you could say that the war, it influenced things very much. So when the war happened and in the aftermath of the war, it was impossible to go on with business as usual. The war and its aftermath uh, is what people are thinking about. At the end, let me ask you a personal question. Will you continue as a member of parliament in Armenia? Actually, no, I wasn't uh, on the party list. I'm going to return to expert community. I have some projects in the field of uh, policy analysis and also some media projects. But this was a very important experience. It taught me a lot about politics. Nothing can be compared to actually being there and experiencing that uh, yourself. So, Mikaya, thank you very much for your precious time and most valuable answers. It was really nice to talk to you and learn your opinion about the recent parliamentary election in Armenia. I wish you all the best and all good luck for your future endeavors. And I wish you a nice summer holiday. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you and I wish you good luck. And also, yeah, have a good vacation. Thank you.